It took Ukraine one week to recapture what Russia took over five months. The lead starts right now. Ukraine's impressive gains forcing Russian forces to retreat, but are those advances temporary as the Kremlin launches retaliatory strikes? Plus, emotional farewell the Queen's four adult children surrounding their mother's coffin. The message today from her oldest son, the new king, before tomorrow's journey to London and calling foul questions over the list of the so-called best colleges and universities in the U.S. after one prestigious university admits that its data was cooked. A brewing scandal putting reputations, prestige, money, and power all on the line. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our politics lead. Any moment, President Biden will give a speech in Boston on an issue that is very personal and important to him and his family, the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. President Biden hoping to bring more attention to his administration's efforts to cut the, the cancer death rate in half over the next 25 years. President Biden's son, Bo, an Iraq war veteran, died of brain cancer in 2015. He was only 46 years old. Let's get straight to CNN's Athena Jones for us. She's in Boston. And Athena, the date and location of the speech are no coincidence. Hi, Jake. That's right. This event is taking place at the John F. Kennedy Library on this date because this marks the 60th anniversary of JFK's moonshot speech, where he uh, launched that years-long effort to land a man on the moon. Uh, Kennedy is saying we choose to do, go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. That speech was a call to action to marshal the U.S.'s scientific and technological resources to try to land a man on the moon. They were able to do that in 10 years. Now, uh, Biden has been working on this cancer, a different kind of moonshot, a cancer moonshot, uh, to cut in half the death rate from cancer by at least 50 percent over the next 25 years. And this is something that he has uh, promised a, a, a fierce sense of urgency. Uh, again, marshalling the resources and the tools uh, already present in the U.S. and also spurring advancement and development. And so we are going to be uh, waiting for him to talk about this, to make some announcements about a new head of a new agency uh, dealing with biomedical advancements around cancer and much more. Jake. All right, Athena Jones, stick with us. We're going to go back to Boston shortly when President Biden begins speaking. While we wait to hear from him, let's turn to our world lead, though. Today, Queen Elizabeth's coffin arrived at St. Giles Cathedral, Cathedral in Edinburgh, Scotland, where members of the royal family joined in a service of thanksgiving. The Queen's four adult children, led by King Charles III, then stood, stood vigil around her coffin, which will stay in Scotland for the next day for the public to pay their respects before it is then flown back to London tomorrow. CNN's Max Foster reports now from Buckingham Palace on how England is preparing to say its final farewell to its longest reigning monarch. The new king processing behind his mother's coffin in lockstep with his siblings along Edinburgh's cobbled Royal Mile. The silence only broken by royal salutes and gunfire, one a minute, from the city's iconic castle. Inside St Giles, members of the royal family and household, as well as Scottish politicians and representatives of the military and Scottish civil society, paid tribute and remembered the Queen's love of Scotland. And so we gather to bid Scotland's farewell to our late monarch, whose life of service 
to the nation and the world we celebrate and whose love for Scotland was legendary. The late monarch's casket draped with the royal standard of Scotland and the nation's crown that she received here in 1953, a send-off full of Scottish symbolism and her son taking his first steps as Scotland's king. Just shortly after, Charles III meeting Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, leader of arguably the most rebellious of his nations. Sturgeon wants to eventually secure another referendum on Scottish independence, challenging the unity of the kingdom. But in her address to the king at the Scottish Parliament, she pledged her loyalty. Your Majesty, we stand ready to support you as you continue your own life of service and as you build on the extraordinary legacy of your beloved mother, our Queen. Queen Elizabeth, Queen of Scots. The encounter with the Scottish leader came after an event at Westminster, where the King and Queen Consort received letters of condolence from both Houses of Parliament. There, Charles III reiterated his loyalty to Britain's democratic values. Her late Majesty pledged herself to serve her country and her people, and to maintain the precious principles of constitutional government which lie at the heart of our nation. This vow she kept with unsurpassed devotion. She set an example of selfless duty, which, with God's help and your counsels, I am resolved faithfully to follow. Monday was Scotland's day to express their condolences. On Tuesday, the King heads to Northern Ireland and he visits Wales on Friday. A unifying bid before a final farewell to the late Queen at the state funeral on Monday. The casket will be flown to uh, London tomorrow night and um, it will rest here at Buckingham Palace before a full ceremonial procession to Westminster Hall down the road where the Queen will lie in state. Uh, lots of people expected to come out and see that procession but many more miles long queues are expected as uh, the British public um, get a chance to pay their respects to the Queen as she rests in Westminster. All right, Max Foster outside Buckingham Palace, as always, my friend. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss CNN Royals historian Kate Williams. Kate, it's been four days uh, since the Queen passed away. Uh, how are the people in the UK, broadly speaking, how, how are they feeling? It has been an emotional roller coaster here in the UK. The really shock news that the Queen had passed in on Thursday, the news we were all dreading, and then a sense of joy and celebration that Charles was adopting his role with, with real such energy and gusto. But now we are seeing the Queen in her casket, the final farewell, the final goodbye. And I think people really are very overwhelmed by emotion. I've been speaking to people at the palace. It's really crowded You're there, and it will be very much so when the Queen comes here on Wednesday to be to lie in state and people are saying to me we're here because we want to pay our respects to the queen we want to celebrate her amazing life and we're a part of history this is a historic moment we will never see another reign like this we will never have another queen at least in my lifetime and it is a moment a great moment of history and people really feel that weight of history during today's service of thanksgiving uh, the reverend talked about the queen's deep 
links with Scotland uh, and its people. But after the service, King Charles met with Scotland's leader, uh, Nicola Sturgeon. She, she's pushed for another vote to decide if Scotland should leave the UK and become its own country. Do you think the United Kingdom is about to fracture? Yes, Jake. Well, Mrs. Sturgeon does want a referendum. It was 55-45 before in 2014, so it was reasonably close. And things have changed since then. We have left the EU. There are some people who voted in because they wish to remain in the EU. Otherwise, they had to queue up as a new country. But we have left the EU now. And the Queen, a lot of people had a lot of respect for the Queen. And what we're going to see, I think, as Charles's reign begins, are some countries of which they have the monarch as head of state questioning becoming republics, such as Australia, such as Jamaica. And I think that process will really push along the idea in Scotland to have a referendum. Mrs. Sturgeon here today was talking about the, the Queen as the anchor for the nation. She was praising her and her love for Scotland. The Queen adored Scotland. She she really took pride in her title of Queen of Scots. But it may be that during the King's reign, during King Charles's reign, we see Scotland become an independent country, which will be cataclysmic for the UK. We saw William and Harry uh, reunited over the weekend for the first time in public in a long time. Uh, with their wives. Uh, Their joint appearance covered the front pages of nearly every major UK publication. Tell us about the significance of this, and do you think we'll see more of it as the mourning period continues and the funeral approaches? Yes, Jake, I think it was very significant. This moment that you're showing now when the Fab Four, as they used to be known, walked down in Windsor, the crowds were overwhelmed, they were thrilled, they were so excited to see them, the joy, the excitement, really to see the brothers together. And I found it so moving, Jake, because the last time I remember seeing the brothers like this, looking at flowers, is when that tragic death, the tragic moment with Princess Diana when they came out from Balmoral to look at all the flowers spontaneously put there by the public, and that they're they're reunited for their beloved grandmother. They've both put out statements about how much they loved her. I really think this shows that grief, as the Queen said, is the price you pay for love, and it can reunite us. And perhaps, hopefully, as King Charles's reign progresses, there'll be more of a reign, more of a role for Harry and Meghan, because they do, they do have star power. Yeah, it's nice to see all four of them together. Kate Williams, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're standing by to hear from President Biden any minute. Also ahead, a new crossroads for investigation into classified documents seized at Mar-a-Lago as lawyers for former President Trump push back on an appeal. Plus, what could be the most consequential days yet as the January 6th committee prepares to return in its high-profile interviews being negotiated right now? Stay with us. And we're back. We're expecting President Biden at any moment to give a speech in Boston on his cancer moonshot initiative. The president plans to highlight his administration's effort to cut the cancer death rate in half over the next 25 years. While we're waiting to hear from President Biden, and we will bring you his remarks as soon as he steps to the podium, Donald Trump's legal team today filed a motion urging the federal judge overseeing its legal battle with the Justice Department to reject the Justice Department's request to continue reviewing materials seized from Mar-a-Lago, arguing the DOJ is exaggerating the risk of classified documents being stored at Mar-a-Lago and arguing that Donald Trump should have, quote, absolute right of access, unquote, to presidential records, whether they're classified or not. But as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, even one of Trump's formerly strongest allies is calling this all a losing argument from Trump. 
Federal Judge Eileen Cannon facing a critical decision on how the special master process should proceed as the disagreements between Trump's legal team and the Justice Department escalate in court filings. Lawyers for the former president saying the DOJ's criminal inquiry into the potential mishandling of classified documents is simply a document storage dispute that has spiraled out of control and questioning whether there was an urgent need for the FBI to search Mar-a-Lago. To have this search warrant uh, based on failed narrow negotiations, I suppose, that uh, allowed the government to basically ransack the president's residence. Trump's legal team now asking Judge Cannon to deny DOJ's request that investigators be able to continue reviewing the classified documents they seized, but also seeming to sidestep the former president's common refrain that he declassified all documents, only saying that Trump had the authority to declassify anything he wanted and arguing the documents found at Mar-a-Lago were secure in a locked room, writing, there is no indication any purported classified records were disclosed to anyone. But on one of their main disagreements, even Trump ally Chris Christie thinks Trump's team has a losing argument. Their main thrust is that some of these may be covered by executive privilege. Well, there's only one executive who can assert the privilege, and that's the one who is the current executive. Joe Biden. A federal judge is asking Trump and DOJ to come to some agreement on the special master review to little avail, each side putting up their own preferred candidates for the job and suggesting different timelines. DOJ wanting the review finished by mid-October as opposed to the 90-day deadline set forth on Trump's side. Trump was back in the D.C. area Monday at his golf club in Northern Virginia. Meanwhile, Trump's challenger in 2016, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, saying she believes Trump should be treated like any other American in a criminal investigation. If the evidence proves uh, or seems to uh, show that there are charges that should be leveled, then uh, I think the rule of law should apply to anyone. And Trump's legal team has just filed a three-page response to DOJ's two possible candidates for special master. Trump's team is now saying that they object to both candidates, but they're refusing to publicly give their reasons why. They're saying that they'll do that instead in private with the judge. We are expecting a similar filing about the special master from DOJ soon. And in addition, we've also just learned that a Texas woman has been arrested for allegedly leaving a series of threatening voicemail messages for the judge handling this part of the case, Eileen Cannon. Court documents are detailing how this woman, Tiffany Gish of Houston, left three voicemails for Judge Cannon, threatening to have her assassinated in front of her family. Jake? That's horrible. Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Tomorrow, the House of Representatives returns to Capitol Hill as the work of the select committee investigating the January 6th attack ramps up. I spoke earlier today with the vice chair, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming. I asked her about brand new exclusive reporting today on former President Trump's refusal to accept the 2020 election results. Maggie Haberman of The New York Times has a new book coming out, and among the many scoops in her book um, are the fact that Donald Trump... Uh, told aides in the days following his loss in the election that he was going to just stay at the White House. One of the quotes, quote, I'm just not going to leave. Another quote, we're never leaving. How can you leave when you won an election? What's your reaction? You know, um, I obviously haven't seen her book, uh, but sometimes people will say, well, you know, uh, what happened wasn't wasn't that big a deal because 
You know, if, if Mike Pence had rejected a slate of electors, the Supreme Court would have sorted it out. You know, there's, there are a lot of ways that people sort of say this wasn't as dangerous as it really was. And when you hear something like that, um, I think you have to recognize that, that we were in no man's land and uh, territory we'd never been in before as a nation. Um, and when you think about, well, the Supreme Court would have sorted it out, you have to ask yourself, but who would have enforced the rulings of the court? And if you have a president who's refusing to leave the White House or who's saying he refuses to leave the White House, um, then anyone who sort of stands aside and says someone else will handle it um, is themselves um, putting, putting the nation at risk uh, because, um, you know, it, it's clear that when you're at a moment that we faced, everyone's got to stand up and take responsibility. And I think that's it's not surprising that those are the sentiments that, you know, he reportedly expressed. I think, again, it just affirms, affirms the reality of the danger. And you can see more of my interview with Congresswoman Cheney and many, many others in a brand new CNN special. It's called American Coup, the January 6th investigation that airs Sunday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. The January 6th Select Committee is set to meet in person tomorrow to consider one of its most significant decisions yet, whether to formally request that Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence appear before the panel. Let's bring in CNN's Sarah Murray. And Sarah, this would be uh, an extremely important testimony for the committee. Are either Trump or Pence expected to testify if asked? You know, the committee members don't have high hopes that either of these gentlemen would actually show up and provide testimony. I think we would all love to see what would happen if Mike Pence was up there talking about the conversations he had with Donald Trump. But the committee doesn't actually think that that will happen. What they do... uh, think they may want to do is establish this record, essentially show that they reached out to both of these men, that they sought their testimony. And they think that this is especially important if they move forward with these criminal referrals related to the former president. They've then established a record around trying to talk to Trump and his top deputy, the VP. And and Gloria, uh, Vice President Pence has not ruled out that he would testify before the committee. And last month he said he would consider an invitation from the panel. Uh, How seriously do you take that? Uh, Not very seriously. I think he is not going to say I'm not going to consider it. But uh, from my sources in Pence world, it's clear that this needle has not moved at all, that the committee is going to meet. They're going to talk about it. As Sarah's saying, they're going to want to do it for the historic record and say, because, you know, how can you have an investigation and not even ask these two men to testify? They don't expect a positive answer. But at least they think they need to do it. And I think Pence World understands that. And I think the committee also understands what the answer is going to be. Yeah. And Sarah, uh, committee members have hinted that the panel is going to take a vote and decide whether or not they think uh, there should be a criminal referral to the Justice Department for Donald Trump or anyone else. Um, where does the committee stand on that vote as of now? Yeah, I mean, this is a point of discussion in the committee. It's one of the things that they are going to have to deal with in their final months of work, and they're not all on the same page about whether to do this. I think the other thing to remember is, you know, this is largely symbolic in nature. The committee may decide they want to make criminal referrals because they have done all this work and could see it as sort of a culmination, you know. If we've done all of these hearings, if we've gathered all this evidence that points to the former president's behavior, how could we not make a criminal referral at this point? But again, you know, this is a committee 
committee that's reconvening at a different time. It is now very clear that the Justice Department is looking at, you know, the behavior of the former president and his top aides on a number of fronts. And, and Gloria, the FBI search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate has significantly changed the political landscape, Mm -hmm. I have to say, from when the committee (laughs) held its last hearing in July. Now we have the FBI raiding Donald Trump's home, uh, searching for the home for these uh, classified uh, documents. Mm -hmm. Do you think that will make a difference in the committee's thinking as they decide whether or not to refer? Yeah, I was talking to somebody familiar with the committee's thinking on this, and that's why they're meeting, because they have to figure out what their narrative is. I think they also in a way, take some pride in saying, you know, we got this ball rolling Mm -hmm. because we were interested in what the archives had. And they were all complaining, if you recall, that the Justice Department wasn't doing enough or wasn't doing anything. And now, of course, they don't have that complaint. But in order to have a cohesive narrative that somehow takes Mar-a-Lago into account, even though that's separate from their investigation, is what they're trying to figure out now, because they really want the public to watch. So the Justice Department doesn't have the kind of deadline that the committee probably has. Right. The committee will probably have right. to fold if Republicans take control of the House in November, uh, which just historically in terms of votes and will probably happen. Um, the Justice Department is still going to be uh, under Biden and Garland, likely, right. uh, until you know for at least a few more years. But... Um, that means that the committee does have, is, they're working on borrowed time. Yeah. How, how do they prioritize going forward, knowing that they'll probably have to fold up shop in December? Right. I mean, the reality is there are a number of loose ends the committee has to deal with, in addition to getting their report in order. That's part of what they're working on, is getting this final report done. They're also trying to figure out, you know, there are people that they are probably just never going to hear from. Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, these witnesses they've called. They also have to figure out what they're going to do about these Republican lawmakers that they've sought testimony from, people like Kevin McCarthy, people like Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, people who, again, are resisting uh, appearing before the committee. So they're trying to figure out how to sort that out, Jake. It does certainly look as though there are a lot of people who are reluctant to tell the truth uh, to the committee. Sarah Murray, Gloria Borger, thanks so much. We're waiting to hear directly from President Biden talking about his cancer moonshot initiative. We'll bring that to you as soon as he steps to the podium. Also ahead, Ukrainians planting their flags and recapturing territory taken by Russians and doing so in just a matter of days. Is this a temporary win or might this have a lasting effect on pushing back the Kremlin for good? Stay with us. Right now, Ambassador Caroline Kennedy is introducing President Biden at that event in Boston. President Biden set to address his cancer moonshot initiative aimed at reducing the number of deaths from cancer, cutting it in half over the next 25 years. Let's listen in. weren't sure even that a moon landing on the surface of the moon was possible. But President Kennedy understood the power of the idea. And over time, along with his inaugural address, his call to service, The moonshot speech has become perhaps his best-known legacy. The vision, the purpose, the courage it embodied has inspired each generation to take on hard challenges and provides a metaphor to guide us as we face adversity in our own lives. My father believed that the effort to land on the moon would bring out the best in America, that everyone would contribute, that it would require invention, creativity, teamwork, commitment, and faith, and that the world would be different because of it. He didn't live to see it, but he set in motion an age of discovery and invention, 
of Earth science and space exploration that has made America the leader of the world. As citizens, as colleagues, as friends, we can learn from his vision. It's up to each of us to set an example, to do hard things when we don't think we can, to believe in others when they take risks, to support them when it's tough, and never forget that together we can achieve great things. No one embodies that spirit more than President Joe Biden. He's lived President Kennedy's call to service throughout his life and career. As president, he has restored the soul of America, advanced freedom and democracy around the world. For more than 50 years, President Biden has been fighting for working families, affordable health care, access to a quality education, and always to honor our men and women in uniform. But perhaps the most personal fight for him is the one against cancer. As vice president, he launched his own moonshot to end cancer as we know it, and with characteristic perseverance, he is still committed to that cause. Like the Bidens, like all families, our family has lost people we love to this disease, including three who created and sustained this library. My uncle Steve, my mother, and my uncle Teddy. And I want to remember them today. Having felt the grief that comes with such loss, I've often looked to President Biden's life for inspiration. His courage and compassion, his endless empathy and abiding faith, and his confidence that we can overcome this challenge have lifted our hearts. His personal commitment and the national goal he sets today will save lives, change our country, and heal the world. I'm honored to serve in his administration and to introduce him now. Thank you, Madam Ambassador. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Madam Ambassador Caroline, thank you for uh, that introduction and for your enduring friendship. I was talking earlier about how your family had a very difficult time in my life when I first got to the center as a 29-year-old kid, before I was sworn in, where I lost my wife and my daughter and my two boys who were so badly injured when struck by the tractor trailer. And uh, your family was there for me. No, I really mean it. Your family was there for me. You may remember some of it, and I'll never forget it. They got me and my boys through an awful lot. I'm truly honored to be with you all this and your incredible family. and. Uh, Jack, I believe your, uh, your generation is the best educated, most talented generation in our history. And that's the reason I'm so optimistic about the future, and that's not hyperbole. I mean it. You know, uh, Chital, thank you for sharing your powerful story. And thank you, uh, Mayor Wu, for the passport in this great city. And thank you to Health and... Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra and Boston's own Marty Walsh. Marty. And thank you to the members of the Massachusetts delegation from the House, Representatives Presley, Lynch, Keating, and uh, uh, Jack, uh, uh, Jake, I should say, 
Auchincloss, uh, and, uh, and Laurie, thank you as well for being here. You have beautiful daughters, they're great kids. And I want to thank all of you, the cancer patients, survivors, caregivers, and don't jump from up there, okay? And all, uh, for all the leaders of science and medicine for being here today. This is a powerful place for reflection and remembrance. <clears throat> On this day in 1962, America was facing an inflection point. One of those times that changes everything from the day before to the day after. The shadow of world wars cast over a Cold War. The march on civil rights, urgent yet uncertain. And against all of that and more, America faced a choice to move forward or to move backwards, to build the future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of unity and hope and optimism, or a nation of division, violence, and hatred. At this inflection point, President Kennedy made a choice for the nation, thank God. On this day in 1962 at Rice University in Houston, he spoke about America's possibilities. I was asked by Xi Jinping, who I met with more than any other world leader in the Tibetan Plateau, and he turned to me and he said, can you define America for me? And I said, yes, and I was sincere. I said, one word, possibilities. In America, we believe anything is possible. I mean it. And in choosing to go to the moon, President Kennedy said America was doing so, quote, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. Because the goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills, because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept. One we're willing, not one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. Unwilling to postpone, President Kennedy, unwilling to postpone. President Kennedy set a goal to win the space race against Russia and advance science and technology for all of humanity. And when he set that goal, he established a national purpose that could rally the American people in a common cause. And he succeeded. Now, in our time, on the 60th anniversary of his clarion call, we face another inflection point. And together, we can choose to move forward with unity, hope, and optimism. And I believe we can usher in the same unwillingness to postpone, the same national purpose that will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills to end cancer as we know it and even cure cancers once and for all. I give you my word as a Biden, this cancer moonshot is one of the reasons why I ran for president. It's part of my unity agenda that I laid out in my State of the Union address to rally the American people to work together. Because we know this, cancer does not discriminate red and blue, 
It doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Beating cancer is something we can do together, and that's why I'm here today. We've made enormous progress in the past 50 years since President Nixon signed the National Cancer Act to declare a war on cancer. We learned cancer is not a single disease, but there are over 200 different types of cancers caused by different genetic mutations in our cells. We discovered new medicines, therapies, early detection and prevention measures to extend and to save lives. In the first 25 years since the National Cancer Act, the death rate from cancer largely remained unchanged. Then things began to change. With progress over the last 25 years, the death rate from cancer has fallen more than 25%. But despite the progress of life ex lives extended, lives saved, cancer is still the number two cause of death in America, second only to heart disease. For too many cancer patients and their families, instead of hope, there's bewilderment. The feeling of being on your own. Frustration that hospitals said doctors can't easily share your medical records with other hospitals and doctors to help find answers, even when every minute counts. Having to advocate for even the most basic care and attention for your loved ones. The flood of information is completely different, is a completely different language with few people help and available to help you decipher it. Having therapy that work that can work within reach, but is too expensive or insurance won't cover it. And so when President Obama asked me to launch a cancer moonshot, our goal was to bring an added urgency, a new urgency to the fight. And in my view, not unlike President Kennedy did, we harnessed federal resources to change the culture, increase cooperation, and break down the silos that exist. That included everything of making published results of federally funded cancer research more available to any patient, to any doctor, for free, instead of the firewall that had been set up. That included recognition that for many cancer patients, it's hard to even know if there's a clinical trial that can help them, let alone how to enroll in one. So we launched trials.cancer.gov so everyone can find a clinical trial near them or across the country and the world, and they can gain access to these trials. I've traveled the country brought together leaders in healthcare, technology, education, business, philanthropy. I visited many of the major cancer research centers in the world. And nowhere, no matter where I was or what the topic at hand, world leaders wanted to talk to me about our cancer moonshot. That's not hyperbole, that's a fact. For example, Pope Francis convened a major international conference on cell therapies at the Vatican and invited me to speak about our mission. One of the final pieces of legislation President Obama signed into law was the Bipartisan 21st Century Cures Act. It streamlined the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, by creating an oncology center of excellence 
so new cancer treatments can be evaluated faster. It provided seven years of new funding, including research on cancer therapies and the disparities, trial networks to discover new drugs and new efforts in childhood cancer. As president of the United States Senate, I presided over the overwhelming bipartisan vote and watched my friend Mitch McConnell name the cancer provisions in that bill after my son Bo, who had lost his life to that disease just months earlier. And when we left office, Jill and I knew we had to keep going through, keep it up, so we initiated the Biden Cancer Initiative. We focused on turning the moonshot into a movement, not just a shot, a movement, to create a cancer research and care system that most people think we already have, but they don't realize until they find they have cancer that we don't, but one that we deserve. And everywhere we'd go, people would share their stories, literally, in grocery stores, airports, rope lines. While we heard stories of loss and despair, the stories began to change to a feeling of real hope. Not because of me or Jill, but because of all of you and so many of you at home, doctors, researchers, advocates, caregivers, patients, survivors. And that's when I was elected president, I determined to supercharge the cancer moonshot as a central effort in the Biden-Harris administration. In February, I laid out our plan that is bold, ambitious, and I might add, completely doable. The goal is to cut cancer death rates by at least 50%, at least 50% in the next 25 years. To turn more cancers from death sentences into chronic diseases people can live with. To create more supportive experience for patients and families. And to update, to update our fight against the cancer. It's a disease we often diagnose too late and have too few ways to prevent it in the first place where there are stark inequities based on race, disability, zip code, sexual orientation, gender identity, and other factors. We know too little about why treatments work for some patients, but the same patient, the different patient with the same disease, it doesn't work for. We still lack strategies for developing treatments for some cancers, like childhood cancers. We don't do enough to help patients and families navigate the cancer care system. We don't learn enough from their experience as patients. We don't share enough data and knowledge to bring the urgency we need to finding new answers. But for each, for each of the ways we know cancer today, we know we can change the trajectory. For example, to prevent cancers, scientists are exploring whether mRNA vaccine technology that brought us safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines could be used to stop cancer cells when they first arise. To target the right treatments, we're learning more about how to use genetics, immune response, and other factors to tell which combinations of treatments are likely to work best for each individual. To address the inequities, we can ensure prevention, detection, treatment, reach patients in urban, 
rural and suburban and tribal communities so they have equal access to cancer diagnostics, therapeutics, and clinical trials. As part of the supercharged moonshot, I'll use my authorities as president to increase funding, to break log, jam break log jams and to speed breakthroughs. I've also formed a new cancer cabinet that is driving a whole-of-government effort to unleash every possible asset within our power, from NASA, that knows more about radiation than any doctor does, to the Defense Department, that has the ability to calculate, and the Energy Department, do a million billion calculations per second, Health and Human Services. Secretary Becerra plays a key role in the cancer cabinet, as does Marty Walsh, a childhood cancer survivor, who is committed to helping Americans get time off for cancer screenings or care for a loved one. White House Office of Science and Technology Policy is changing the path of the, for the cancer moonshot for 2022 and beyond. And today, I'm setting a long-term goal for the cancer moonshot to rally America and ingenuity that we can engage like we did to reach the moon that actually cures cancers, not all cancer, cancers, cures for cancers once and for all. And a critical way to do that is that going through what I call ARPA-H, Advanced Research Projects Agencies for Health. It's based on DARPA, the Defense Department's Advanced Research Projects Agency that has helped lead to breakthroughs in technologies to protect our national security, like the internet, GPS, and so much more. ARPA-H will have the singular purpose to drive breakthroughs to prevent, detect, and treat diseases including cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, and other diseases, and enable us to live healthier lives. I call for ARPA-H in my campaign, and after being elected president, notwithstanding the fact that Democrats and Republicans allegedly don't talk to one another, Republicans, Independents, and Democrats in Congress came together and invested $1 billion initially to launch ARPA-H. Imagine the possibilities. Vaccines that could prevent cancer, like there is for HPV. Imagine molecular zip codes that could deliver drugs and gene therapy precisely to the right tissues. Imagine simple blood tests during an annual physical that could detect cancer early with a chance of the cure best. Imagine getting a simple shot instead of a grueling chemo or getting a pill from a local pharmacy instead of invasive treatments and long hospital stays. Imagine treatments beyond cancer, bold approaches to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity, something Vice President Harris is laser-focused on. And imagine artificial retinas that could help blind people see these are just a few of the ideas that illustrate the amazing potential of ARPA-H. When President Kennedy called for a moonshot, we didn't have all the tools and experience needed. With our cancer moonshot today, we do. And I'm pleased to announce my selection as the inaugural director of ARPA-H, Dr. Renee Wegerson, who is here today. Doctor, where are you? Stand up.
A leading biomedical scientist, a decade of experience leading multiple biotech projects at DARPA. And by the way, it's about how to use all the assets we have, all of them. An entrepreneur in synthetic biology says you're going to bring the legendary DARPA attitude and culture and boldness and risk taking to ARPA-H to fill a critical need. Discoveries that save lives, change lives, and often start, they often start in the lab bench. But then those basic research breakthroughs need to be tested, scaled, and brought to the clinic. This may require unusual partnerships. That may require support to get over many obstacles that exist. That's why ARPH is designed what it's designed to do, so the advances can reach all Americans sooner. I predict ARPH will emerge as a new and exciting member of America's biomedical ecosystem. But it's not enough to invent technologies to save lives. We need to manufacture advanced biotechnologies here in the United States. That's why today I signed an executive order that directs the federal government to ensure biotechnologies invented in the United States of America are made in the United States of America, whether they are for cancer treatments or anything else like next generation fuels and materials. Today's action is going to ensure that America leads the world in biotechnology and biomanufacturing, creating jobs, reducing prices, strengthening supply chains so we don't have to rely on anywhere else in the world. Here in America will be made. And here's, there's more that we're doing. The Inflation Reduction Act that I signed into law puts a $2,000 cap on the total prescription drug costs for any senior on Medicare, including cancer medicine. And for so many people, one of the first things they think about when they get a diagnosis, how am I going to pay for the treatment? Do we need to sell the house? Do we need to skip payments on the car? Can we afford to send the kids to college? The Inflation Reduction Act is a godsend. It's going to save people on one prostate cancer drug about $6,000 a year. Thousands of women are taking breast cancer treatments that will see about a $7,000 a year savings. But that's not all. When I led the cancer moonshot as vice president, one of the biggest issues I talked about was how federally funded cancer researchers were not sharing their results with their peers or the public because they wanted to have the answer. You all know it. As I mentioned earlier, we made federally funded cancer research more available to any patient, to any doctor, anywhere for free. And today, as president, we're making sure that transparency applies to all federally funded science beyond just cancer. And this summer, I announced the new head of the National Cancer Institute, Boston's own, Boston's own Monica Bertalia, Bertinale, excuse me. Monica, you can call me Bidden. And she's here today. Where are you, Monica? Stand up. Thank you. The National Cancer Institute is launching a major national trial for those new tests I mentioned that could detect one or more cancers merely by taking blood samples. You know, 
If that's the case, these blood tests could lead to less invasive cancer detection tools that will save lives. We're also launching the first ever Cancer Moonshot Scholar Program to support a new generation of scientists from every background, from every part of the country, to launch their cutting-edge research and careers. But we need everyone to get in the game. That's why I'm also calling on the science and medical communities to bring the boldest thinking to this fight. I'm calling on the private sector to develop and test new treatments, make drugs more affordable, share more data and knowledge that can inform the public and benefit every company's research. And I'm respectfully calling on people living with cancer and caregivers and families to keep sharing their experience and pushing for progress. Go to whitehouse.gov slash cancer moonshot. Share your ideas. So many of you have already made a difference. Last month, I signed the so-called PACT Act into law. One of the most significant laws helping veterans and their families impacted by toxic exposure, like burn pits that lead to cancer. It was veterans and their families, advocates and allies, who helped me get this bill to my desk. They never gave up. They never stopped. They slept in the Capitol steps. It matters. It's personal to all of us. So let me close with this. Caroline, I couldn't be here and not talk about your Uncle Teddy. He was one of my dearest friends. One of the things that brings us close as families is the dread of cancer that he and my beau fought to the end and died months apart. After Bo passed, Vicky wrote me a letter about how, after Ted lost his older brother Joe, his father wrote to a friend who just lost his son. Caroline, your grandfather wrote, and I quote, when one of your loved ones goes, goes out of your life, you think of what he might have done with a few more years, and you wonder, you wonder what you're going to do with the rest of yours. Then one day, because there's a world to be lived in, you find you are part of it, trying to accomplish something, something he did not have time enough to do. And perhaps that is the reason for it all. I hope so, end of quote. For so many of us, that's what we're trying to do, live a life worthy of the loved ones we've lost, the loved ones we can save. With their hope and absolute courage and with an unwillingness to postpone and with a singular purpose for ourselves as an, and as a nation, President Kennedy said in this day 60 years ago, we set sail on this new sea because of a new life-saving knowledge to be gained that must be used for progress of all people, end of quote. In our time today, that's our charge to keep in my view. I know we can do this together because I know this, there's nothing, nothing, nothing beyond our capacity if we work together as the United States of America. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you for listening. We have been listening to President Biden speaking about one of the most important 
items on his agenda, in his view, the Cancer Moonshot Initiative. He's in Boston, Massachusetts at the JFK Library. He says, pardon me, accomplishing this goal, cutting cancer deaths in half over the next 25 years, he says that's one of the reasons he ran for president. And he announced a number of new programs designed to make that initiative a reality. CNN's Athena Jones is in Boston for us. We also are joined by CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Athena, how much of this initiative is driven by President Biden's deep sense of loss and grief because of his son, Beau, dying to brain cancer a few years ago? You have to imagine uh, quite a bit of it, Jake. That that line that you just mentioned really stood out to me as well. It was one of the first things I, I highlighted, this idea that he ran for president because of this cancer moonshot. And we've been talking about uh, how he has been working on this issue for a number of years. It was back in 2016 at his State of the Union that uh, president, then-President Barack Obama tasked then-Vice President Biden with uh, leading this initiative. And, you know, he said at the time or soon after that, you know, that he was, he was going to spend the rest of his time in office working on this and the rest of his life he was going to devote to this. And he and his wife, Jill Biden, launched that uh, Biden Cancer Initiative uh, aimed at research. And so this is uh, absolutely something that he feels uh, very, very close to having lost his son, Bo Biden, to, to, to brain cancer in 2015. You heard him there announce several initiatives. He talked about uh, the, uh, naming the, a new director or the first director of a newly established agency called ARPA. That's the he's, he compared it to the Department of Defense's DARPA agency, which did a lot of research to help the military and national security. But they came up with things like the internet and GPS, uh, 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 technologies that had a lot of tools beyond the military. Uh, That is the idea behind this new agency to really drive uh, biomedical research, to drive new technology, whether it's testing or treatment uh, to deal with cancer. He also spoke about this executive order also dealing with research. And, uh, and, And he said something also that was very interesting, which is that, you know, a lot of people, most people can relate uh, or most people can have been touched or know someone whose life has been touched by cancer, but this is not really something political. This is cancer doesn't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, everyone can come together to fight this. And he compared it to the moonshot, saying, you know, you have to harness the resources uh, of uh, U.S. scientists and, and doctors and technology to be able to do this. Elizabeth, um, in general, since 1991, cancer deaths are down 31 percent, according to the American Cancer Society. A lot of that's because of prostate cancer. Deaths down 50%, breast cancer deaths down 40%. But a lot of that, uh, I have to say, uh, is because of screening, early screening and preventative measures, not necessarily curing the cancers itself. How feasible, how realistic is it to cut cancer deaths in half in 25 years, do you think? Jake, I reached out to a variety of cancer experts asking that very question this afternoon. I thought they'd say, yeah, I don't know about that. They actually were quite positive. They pointed to the statistic that you just pointed to. In 28 years, they went down 32 percent. Whatever reasons there were, we can do more of the same. And they pointed to several of the things in the president's uh, plan. Uh, For example, investing more money. For example, doing more to get people to quit smoking, getting people to eat better. All of those things that we can do to cut down cancer rates. They thought that this was attainable. Jake? Great news. Athena Jones and Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. This is The Lead. I'm Jake Tamper. And this hour, fire, droughts, floods, problems of seemingly biblical proportions, and now some evangelical Christians believe that combating climate change is a matter of following God's word. Plus, it has been considered the holy grail of college rankings, but new information about one university fudging its data 
for the U.S. News and World Report annual list is raising serious questions about whether it's time to ditch these rankings once and for all. And leading this hour with new developments in our world lead, according to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukrainian forces had recaptured more than 2,300 square miles of territory from Russia. Russia forces have also retreated from large sections of the Kharkiv region of Ukraine. President Zelensky sent a telegram to Moscow asking, quote, do you still think that you can scare us? We're going to start our coverage today with Melissa Bell, who's in Kharkiv, where Ukrainians are starting to uncover Russian-perpetrated atrocities committed in these newly recaptured regions. The tanks spoke to a hasty Russian retreat as Ukrainian forces swept eastwards over the weekend, triumphantly raising the flag over Kupyansk on Saturday. Local police forces providing CNN with exclusive access to a key town now meant to be under Ukrainian control. We still feel uneasy because we've been bombed for four days in a row, says Vassil, and nothing's certain yet. Which only became clearer as we headed further in to Kupyansk. Aircrafts, helicopters, everything. A first artillery strike, too close for comfort, then a second, much closer. That was the sound of artillery landing just next to our car, our armored car. We have come into Kupyansk hoping to get to that flag to see where it had been planted only yesterday. But as you can see, this Sunday afternoon, it's still uh, the scene of some pretty fierce fighting. We've been hearing the sound of outgoing artillery fire. That was the sound of incoming. The policeman tells us our car was deliberately targeted. Time for us to head back to those parts of Kharkiv region, now fully under Ukrainian control after six long months. Generally, yes, people are happy, they feeding the soldiers, they cheering, they, they're celebrating. Feel great, feel like redemption. <laughs> yeah, eager to advance. But in villages like Zaleznichne, Ukrainian investigators know all too well what they'll find after Bucha and Borodyanka that were under Russian control for only a month. Yes, according to our information, we are recording war crimes in almost every village, he says. This, the body of one of two civilians killed in late February. An early victim of the invasion and evidence now of what six months of Russian occupation have cost. Jake, in that village alone, a war crimes prosecutors found the bodies of four civilians. They said the subject of the first war crimes investigations since those advances began. But bear in mind that those villages that the investigators can have access to, few and far between, the very first ones that were captured <coughs> as part of this eastern counteroffensive, because so many of those towns still seeing fighting, still just too dangerous to get to. And yet, as you mentioned, Vladimir Zelensky speaking to the amount of territory captured, it is, say analysts, some 10 percent of all the land that Russians took since the start of the, Fe the February invasion, that is huge and much more than Ukrainians could ever have hoped for. It is hard, every square mile being fought for, but it is, Jake, happening. 
All right, Melissa Bell, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Ukrainian gains have resulted in a stunning transformation of the battlefield. Let's bring in retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Cedric Leighton, Leighton rather. Colonel, what area was Ukraine able to recapture specifically? And tell us why and if it's significant. Well, Jake, it's usually significant. The area that uh, Ukraine has basically been able to recapture uh, is primarily here in the northeast. This is the area around Kharkiv. There's been a little bit of there's been a little bit of action in the south uh, with Kherson, uh, but the main area that Melissa was reporting from is right here, right on the Russian border, and right near the second city of Kharkiv. What did Russian control look like, let's say, a month ago? So a month ago, it looked like this. When you look at the amount of Russian territory that you have right here, this is uh, the red striped area is what Russia controlled, what Russia occupied, and it was really close to Kharkiv. The big fact is that the Ukrainians were able to take all of this and uh, move the Russian forces out of that region. What's happening in southern Ukraine? Because it seems as though Russia is still largely in control there. They are. And the key thing is that the Ukrainians are trying to move into the Kherson region to capture the city of Kherson. This is really important because the Russians are still threatening Odessa. And if they cut this area off, that could strangle Ukraine and create some huge economic difficulties for the country. But right now, the Ukrainians are holding their own and moving forces into this area. So there is activity there. It's just not as much as you see in the northeast. All right, retired Colonel Cedric Leighton, thank you so much. After a string of defeats, the Kremlin is still insisting that it will achieve its military goals in Ukraine. CNN's Matthew Chance now takes a look at the Russian reaction to Ukrainian recent gains and how Russian President Vladimir Putin is handling this bad news. Yeah. We are one people with Russia, read this Kremlin propaganda poster. And no one's reading it anymore. As Ukrainian forces tear it down, the words of a celebrated Ukrainian poet are revealed thinly papered over. Fight and you will win, he writes. It's one poignant moment in a stunning weekend of dramatic Ukrainian gains. In towns and villages across vast swathes of this war-ravaged country's Kharkiv region, Ukrainian troops are being greeted as liberators. For months, these people have lived under Russian guns. Now it's Ukrainian guns, celebrating the recapture of strategic towns like Izum, once a key supply point for Russian troops. Troops who appear to have been routed, with equipment destroyed or just abandoned in the face of a lightning Ukrainian offensive. Heavy armour, ammunition, even food and clothes left behind, as Ukrainian commanders say their Russian enemy simply turned and ran. A powerful, humiliating blow for the Kremlin and its military. But Russian officials are putting on a very different spin. In order to achieve the goals of the special military operation, as they still call it, a decision was made to regroup Russian troops, says this Defence Ministry spokesman. It's an orderly withdrawal, he suggests, not the chaotic rout it seems. But even on pro-Kremlin television, 
the once triumphant mood seems to have shifted towards reality and the blame game is now in full swing. The people who convinced Putin this special operation would be fast and effective really set us up, complains this pundit. Someone must have told him Ukrainians would surrender, he says. Six months ago, did anyone really believe we would be surrendering towns, asked another, and trying to repel a counter-offensive in Kharkiv? This is a serious army, and their weapons are serious too, admits a third, amid heated exchanges. Ukraine's dramatic advance seems to have genuinely shocked Russia. And that makes its leader, who oversaw Moscow anniversary celebrations at the weekend, even more unpredictable and potentially dangerous. Already, Russian hardliners are calling for President Putin to act, mobilize troops and double down in Ukraine. Calls he may no longer be able to resist. Well, Jake, tonight there are other calls in Russia as well from Russian local lawmakers, for instance, in St. Petersburg and Moscow, who are calling for Vladimir Putin to resign because of his actions they say are detrimental to Russia's future. Last week, another group of local Russian lawmakers called for Putin to be tried for treason. All signs of dissent that were once rare now seem to be becoming increasingly common. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. How will Vladimir Putin respond to these new losses in Ukraine and this criticism of his handling of the war? I'm going to ask a former U.S. Secretary of Defense and CIA director next. And we're back with our world lead. Do you think you can scare us? That's the message from Ukrainian President Zelensky to Russian President Putin. This comes as Ukraine is recapturing from Russian control huge swaths of territory in eastern Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss former Defense Secretary and CIA Director during the Obama administration, Leon Panetta. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thanks so much for joining us. So President Zelensky says Ukraine has successfully regained roughly 2,300 square miles of territory recaptured from Russia. Is this a turning point in the war, do you think? I... I think it is a pivotal moment uh, because it really has changed what uh, otherwise was a war of attrition uh, and clearly given Ukraine uh, an advantage here that gives them momentum uh, at a critical time. Uh, You know, gaining 1,200 square miles, uh, having the Russians uh, kind of fall apart uh, and uh, move move quickly to avoid uh, the the offensive that the Ukrainians were... uh, were commanding. It was well-planned, well-executed. Uh, I think the key is going to be whether they can consolidate their gains and keep the pressure on the Russians. This is a moment when they have to continue to strike because the iron is hot. Secretary of State Blinken warned that while he is impressed with Ukraine's gains, uh, he believes the war could go on for several more months, if not longer. What, what more do you think Ukraine needs to actually win this war? I think they need to maintain the momentum that they've established now. Uh, they've got to get uh, the continuing support of the United States and our allies to provide the arms uh, and the assistance necessary. Uh, I think if they can 
uh, continue to move. They don't, they don't have to capture everything all at once. What they can do is consolidate their gains, continue to put pressure on the Russians, uh, continue to make gains. I think that is the strategy that ultimately will force Putin to decide whether or not he's going to continue to struggle with what is a war he can't win uh, or whether he's going to try to negotiate some kind of offering. We've heard some criticism of Putin from within Russia, which is which is rare. We shouldn't make too much out of it. But do you think it's at all possible that Putin's future as the leader of Russia could be in, in jeopardy, especially if Ukraine ends up winning this war? Well, I don't think there's any question. That's the history of Russia. Uh, anytime they've been engaged in a conflict that doesn't turn out well, uh, usually whoever is leader has moved out and moved on. Uh, and that could happen here. You've got criticism back in Moscow, uh, his uh, military leaders, his political leaders, his loyalists uh, are all being very critical. Some are calling for his resignation. Uh, there's no question that he's losing any kind of political base that he had uh, in Moscow. And so it's, uh, it is a moment where Putin is, go- is clearly being tested uh, as to whether or not he can find a way to, in essence, save himself uh, or whether or not he's going to be replaced. So other allies of the United States are seeing the success uh, in Ukraine because of the weapons that the U.S. has given to Ukraine. And now they're now requesting the weapons for themselves, specifically uh, a multiple launch rocket system. What do you think of that? Is that uh, a dangerous precedent to set? Well, you know, every uh, there are a lot of countries that would love to have the weapons uh, that the United States has on a number of fronts. And 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 frankly, we do provide uh, allies with uh, some of those weapons and we'll probably continue to do that. Uh, but clearly here is a case of war in which Ukraine is being challenged. Uh, we gathered together with our allies to provide these weapon systems uh, to the Ukrainians. They've used them very successfully, uh, which is, uh, you know, which is very encouraging in terms of uh, their ability to really fight back and protect their country. So I think the United States has shown that we have the capability to be able to assist countries who are trying to protect their own sovereignty. All right. Former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta, good to see you. And for anybody wondering, that's Buddy behind him in the, in the corner. Buddy, his new puppy. Thanks so much, Mr. Secretary. Appreciate it. A numbers game. Thank Do you. college rankings even mean anything when some top universities admit to fudging their data to get ranked higher? Stay with us. In our national lead, a college scandal that for once, has nothing to do with overzealous rich parents or recruiting athletes. Instead, this scandal is about the famous U.S. News & World Report ranking of colleges and universities. The magazine itself stopped actually publishing in 2010, but the website still exists with much of its focus on ranking universities. And some universities have been caught fudging their numbers. CNN's Martin Savage is here to explain. And Martin... Columbia University in New York, it's one of the the best schools in the world, but Columbia felt the need to lie about their data to improve their ranking? 
Hello, Jake. Yeah, this all began to unravel for Columbia back earlier in the year when a professor of mathematics at Columbia University began to ponder a question. How is it possible that the university had had a pretty meteoric rise in the rankings over the years, going from 18th in the nation to the number two spot? So that mathematician crunched the numbers, the same numbers that Columbia supposedly had been crunching, such as class size, the level of education for faculty, also the student to faculty ratios and others. And when he crunched the numbers, he came up with very different results. He found that Columbia had made significant errors, errors in their favor. So then Columbia did its own internal study, and what do you know? They came out with this particular statement saying, quote, we determined we had previously relied on outdated and incorrect methodologies. We have changed those methodologies for current and future submission. The Secretary of Education has been very critical of college rankings. Listen to what he had to say. Too often, our best resource schools are chasing rankings that mean very little on measures that truly count. College completion economic mobility, narrowing gaps in access to opportunity for all Americans. That system of ranking is a joke. In case I haven't been clear yet, allow me to restate it. We need a culture change in higher education now. And he called those rankings a joke, as you heard there. The question now is if Columbia fudged the numbers who else on those lists might have done the same, Jake? And we should note, I mean, these lists not just U.S. News, but other, other lists, they have a big uh, ripple effect on, on oh, ad course. admissions, research grants, tuition, fundraising, alumni relations. It's not clear that these lists should be used seriously, though, but they are. They are indeed. In fact, millions of parents, uh, prospective students, educators, and then on top of that, many others are sort of grading their own schools against these numbers. So, it really is questionable, but critics have been saying for a long time, these numbers, these rankings, the methodologies, they're all greatly up for question. And now it would appear those critics were right, Jake. All right, Martin Savage, thanks so much. Let's talk now with a former college president, the former president of Brandeis University, Frederick Lawrence. He's also secretary and CEO of the Phi Beta Kappa Society. So thanks for joining me. When, when you talk to college presidents and reporters aren't around... What do they think about these lists, especially the U.S. News and World Report list? People want information to be able to evaluate uh, which schools are better than which schools, how to make decisions about things that are very hard to know about. So they're desperate to try to find something. The problem is these rankings, for all the reasons you were just discussing, are methodologically flawed in very serious ways. But they are relied upon very seriously. So university presidents find themselves in the situation of, on the one hand, saying these are methodologically flawed. Why do we take them seriously? But we know why we take them seriously, because other people are relying on them. So it's very much a whipsaw that you're caught in. Is the U.S. News and World Report ranking, which is the, probably the most famous or infamous of them, is it the same as it was in the 80s when I was applying to college? Because U.S. News and World Report is not even remotely the same as it was in the 1980s. They've added different factors to it. Uh, they've tried to improve in certain ways. I mean, one very good example, uh, as many of your listeners probably know, <clears throat> recently many schools have gone test optional. That means students don't have to provide SAT scores. Uh, at Brandeis, when we did that, 
The other way of applying required, required uh, turning in graded papers by faculty members from high school that had specific comments on them. So we had a different way of evaluating besides just numbers. It used to be as recently as last year, if fewer than 75% of your students turned in uh, test scores, uh, SATs or ACEs, ACTs, um, they would then just randomly assign you a very low number. They've lowered that to 50%. So you could have as many as 50% of your students not taking tests. So that's an improvement, but it doesn't get at the, what the major issue is here. And the major issue here really is that you have something that, that purports to be able to rank schools from one to 100, from one to 300, which is ludicrous. Look, if you wanna have some kind of ranking, do it in bands. You know, say these, this group of 50 schools, these are the most selective schools in the country. This next group of 30 schools, they're highly selective. And, and let us see them in some sort of range that way. But the notion of one through 50 is ludicrous. And it leads to people like Columbia University, as you said, one of the top universities in the world, cheating, that's the word for it, cheating on the numbers that go into these rankings. And the other thing, it's, it's, I, I take your point that it's important for data to be out there. For instance, how much does a university spend per student? What's the average class size, et cetera, et cetera. But it seems like there's a way to put that information out there without whoever these people are at U.S. News or wherever deciding which factor is more important and therefore California Institute of Technology is the number one school and MIT is number 20. Or I mean, that, that, that's the part that seems stupid, not the information itself. Look, and, and Jake, the other piece of this, when, when students would say to me, is, is Brandeis the right school for me? Or is this a better school than that school? My stock response is always to say, before I answer that question, tell me a little bit about yourself. Is UCLA a better school than Brandeis? Tell me about yourself. Do you want to be at a big school with a big uh, Division I football program? Do you want to be at a smaller place? Do you want a school with a particularly strong program in this, particularly strong program in that? You can't rank universities uh, in that kind of a very... Uh, you know, ordered way. At the end of the year, we'll look at the table of uh, of school of teams uh, in Major League Baseball, and you'll see who won more games than who. You can't do that with colleges. Exactly, Frederick Lawrence. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your time and expertise. Coming up, a warning for Democrats: Are they about to fall victim to the same blue mirage that others have fretted about in the past? Stay with us. In our politics lead, Democrats headed into the November midterm elections with some electoral optimism that they have not felt in months, brought about by falling gas prices, reaction to the decision overturning Roe v. Wade, and a string of legislative achievements which have seen Democratic poll numbers rise. But a new analysis in the New York Times could provide cause for concern. Quote, that warning sign is flashing again. Democratic Senate candidates are outrunning expectations in the same places where the polls overestimated Mr. Biden in 2020 and Mrs. Clinton in 2016, it raises the possibility that the apparent Democratic strength in Wisconsin and elsewhere is a mirage, an artifact of persistent and unaddressed biases in survey research, unquote. Laura, let me start with you. How do you think Democrats should take this New York Times analysis? Well, I think that uh, compared to, you know, 10 years ago or so, Democrats are far more skeptical when they see that they're way ahead in polling. I mean, the Democrats that I talk to say that they don't by any means think the Senate is in the bag. They just think that it's a much better landscape than it was, say, five, six months ago because of the fact that they see 
the landscape on the ground changing dramatically after the Dobbs decision. And, of course, voter registration is a big aspect of that. But a lot of them expect the races to be really tight. And, you know, I see that, too. I mean, just because of the fact that the Senate, Democrats have to hold on to all the seats that they currently hold and then plus gain two others. And they're talking about feeling more optimistic in places like North Carolina and Ohio. But those are still going to be really big lifts for them. There are big lifts. And, Scott, Republicans seem to win just two of the most competitive uh, races, which are in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, and Arizona as of right now. Current polling has Democrats up in all of those races. Um, Are Republicans counting on polling, overestimating Democratic support as some of these polls have in the past? Well, I don't know that they're counting on it, but there is a memory that the Senate polling, really going back to 2014, that we're all privy to in the public domain, has been absolute garbage. And most of it has overestimated Democrats. That doesn't necessarily make it true Again, and you won't know until after the election, so you can't count on it, but it is in the back of every Republican operative's mind. On those states you just mentioned, by the way, uh, right now Republicans are feeling really good about Georgia, really good about Nevada. Uh, if Democrats are banking on North Carolina and Ohio, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, so, so I think that the conditions in the landscape exist for Republicans to do it, but there is a lot of clear eyes right now about some changes in the polling, some changes in, in the, the, the enthusiasm numbers. Um, uh, and also the fact that these are purple states. They were incredibly close in the yeah, last couple of states. absolutely. And Democrats are really leaning into the messaging on protecting abortion access in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Um, and, and I want you to take a listen to the Democratic Senate candidate, the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, uh, talking yesterday before voters. Women are the reason we can win. Let me say that again. Women are the reason we win. Don't piss women off. Do you think this will be a a decisive force in some of these races? You know, listen, I think it's going to certainly be a motivating force for so many uh, voters out there, particularly suburban women, suburban white women in particular. And those that's a group of women that Republicans have frankly struggled with. You know, one of the things I think when Dobbs came out, it was unclear how Democrats would really message around this because they hadn't really been successful around abortion. It had been a real talking point for Republicans. In so many ways, it's women's own experiences that are becoming the sort of messaging for Democrats uh, and the experiences of, of the little girl, for instance, in in Ohio, who was raped and then had to go to uh, Indiana. So I think it's a much more favorable uh, environment uh, because of the Dobbs decision. And Democrats have figured out how to message around it. We saw what happened in Kansas. We saw what happened also in that New York special election race. Uh, The idea that abortion rights were about freedom, uh, that kind of messaging seems to be resonating with the kind of independent swing voters that are really going to be decisive in these contests. And on Navarro, we've seen some Republican candidates who before the Dobbs decision, uh, were talking about how they were 100% pro-life, no exceptions except for maybe the life of the mother, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen them try to uh, etch a sketch their, uh, their position on this. Um, Blake Masters, for example, in Arizona, mm-hmm. the Republican candidate there, is now acting as though uh, he has a, a moderate abortion position. Do you think these are examples of people moderating their views, or are they lying to voters? I think they're lying to voters because they were either lying uh, in the primary or they're lying now. Either way, they're lying. And look, I I think what's happened is that many Republicans underestimated the consequences of this decision. For so long, it was about catching the bus, right? And now that the bus has been caught, they've got to live with the consequences. And every day, every day, 
We as women are reading horrific stories. The 10-year-old girl, the woman in Texas having to deliver a child without a skull, uh, the woman who can't get a DNC after a miscarriage, and that, that threatens her life. Every day we are seeing what the horrific consequences to women's health, to families, are from this decision. And it's, it's not going away. It's not going away because these stories aren't going away. And, and I, think, um, I think Senate Republicans and Republicans running anywhere are having to deal with these consequences of catching that bus. I also want to talk about um, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman. Uh, he has a new book out, and he's doing interviews about it. He makes a shocking allegation in his new book. He's a, he's a Republican uh, about the Trump Justice Department pressuring his office, the Southern District of New York, to go after Trump's perceived political enemies, including former Obama Secretary of State John Kerry. Take a look. President Trump attacks John Kerry in two tweets saying that Kerry engaged in possible illegal conversations with Iranian officials regarding the Iran nuclear deal. The very next day, the Trump Justice Department refers the John Kerry criminal case to the Southern District of New York. Two tweets by the president and the John Kerry criminal case becomes a priority for the Department of Justice. And the statute they wanted us to use was enacted in 1799 and had never been successfully prosecuted. Um, we hear a lot from like the Steve Bannons of the world about how this is the you know the, the he's being uh, pro- persecuted for political reasons. But this is actually an example because you have a Republican U.S. attorney saying that this happened uh, of uh, trying to use the Justice Department for political reasons. Yeah, I want to hear the response from the people that he alleges uh, you know did this pressuring uh, in his book. But you know, I, I, look, I, I also think Joe Biden has commented on certain <laughs> Department of Justice issues. Uh, even when he claimed he was going to be totally independent of it over time. So I don't know that it's totally unique to, uh, to uh, Donald this is, Trump. But this is a call to prosecute people. This isn't, well, this he, isn't he a tweet, con- He tweeted out his views about an issue. I mean, you know, after the, after the uh, border, security, uh, border Patrol guys, you know, got accused of whipping the immigrants, Joe Biden went to the podium with no evidence whatsoever and called for them to be, they'll pay. He said they'll pay. I mean, when he, when he wants to get involved in criminal justice matters, he does. You don't, see their- a, you don't see a difference between uh, somebody commenting, and I agree with you that it's inappropriate for a president or a vice president to comment on a, on a Justice Department matter, a comment versus a comment and Justice Department officials referring a criminal case to a specific U.S. attorney. Yeah, I want to hear more about it. I, look, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to defend it, but I am yeah. here to tell you that hardly the first president of the United States to ever weigh in on criminal justice matters. Anna? Well, two things. So look, first of all, uh, let's think about things like the IRS audit, right, of uh, Comey and McCabe. How incredibly coincidental that two of Donald Trump's enemies, political enemies, got audited at the same time. The experts have said how rare that was. It was no coincidence. But the second thing that just drives me crazy and irks me so much are all of these complicit cowardly Republicans who were part of the administration, were part of this problem and kept quiet for all this time and now have the gall to write books and try to monetize on what they kept quiet about when they were part of the problem. So I hope 
that nobody writes these books, buys these books from people like Bill Barr and John Bolton and this gentleman. And maybe if they buy them or if they get them for free, they can line the cages of their birds with those pages. All right. Thanks to all. Uh, The destruction from climate change is reaching biblical proportions and some evangelical Christians believe it's their duty to tackle it. Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, tackling the climate crisis with faith. The National Association of Evangelicals is looking to convince its followers, a group that has been historically resistant to accepting the science of climate change, to finally address and combat the issue. CNN's Renee Marsh now takes a look at how evangelicals are using a biblical basis for environmental activism. First Baptist Church of Glen Arden is an evangelical megachurch in Maryland's Prince George's County, and the congregation believes its commitment to God's word is synonymous with protecting the planet. On its sprawling campus is a seven-acre solar farm with more than 6,000 solar panels that supply 55% of the worship center's electricity. Another 600 solar panels dot the rooftop of the church's family life center. The resources he gives to me. The congregation's electric car-driving senior pastor, John K. Jenkins, is leading the way. Psalms 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and they that dwell therein it. It's God's creation. He made it. We shouldn't abuse or neglect something God created. That's the case being made in a new climate change report by the National Association of Evangelicals. The report uses Bible verses to compel evangelicals to play a role in addressing the climate crisis, citing passages such as Genesis 2.15, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. You can't say that you love Jesus and you care about others and not care about climate change. The new report uses real-life people and events like the 2017 dual hurricanes Harvey and Irma to illustrate the devastating impact of climate change on the world's most vulnerable populations, saying Christian relief organizations provided more aid than FEMA. They need to see not only that we will clean up after the disaster, but also that whenever possible, we will help prevent situations that displace millions. The science is not what convinces people. Narrative stories that they can connect to, connecting their values, those are what convince people. The report acknowledges the Bible does not specifically say how to respond to the changing climate, but argues it does give guiding principles, care for creation, and love our neighbors. It comes on the heels of a summer of extremes, from wildfires and drought to extreme rainfall and epic flooding. Climate change is not a fiction. It is here. Our people, poor people, are paying the price. Yet a divide remains in the evangelical community over climate change. Reverend Franklin Graham called it a part of the Earth's natural cycle, writing in a Facebook post last year, quote, climate change is nothing new. The Bible records it over 4,000 years ago. Pew Research found white evangelicals were the religious group least likely to agree that human activity contributes to climate change. I'm not going to allow political pundits to influence what I believe the Bible teaches. And Jake, in the last couple of months alone, we have seen extreme weather and temperatures in many red states. 
that also happen to be areas with high concentrations of white evangelicals. Take a state like Texas, where they've seen flooding, droughts, epic ice storms. But the fact of the matter is that in the United States, politics influences religion so much so that even when they are living the reality, there are certain segments of the evangelical community that will not acknowledge climate change. All right, Renee Marsh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A star is born, and we're getting our first look at it, thanks to the amazing new pictures from the world's most powerful telescope. Stay with us. In our out-of-this-world lead, the latest image from the new Webb telescope revealing the inner regions of the Orion Nebula more clearly and in greater detail than even the Hubble telescope. You're looking at what scientists call a stellar nursery where a brightly glowing new star is surrounded by a disk of dust and gas, where planets eventually will form. Scientists say this environment is similar to our own solar system when it was forming, you know, about four and a half billion years ago. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, and Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. It's sitting there all two hours like a ripe apple. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.